This is episode number six of Artful Thought, recorded live at the University of San Francisco's KUSF studio, which aired on Thursday, May 20th, 2019. I am gigantically honored to have the opportunity to talk with Bay Area creative Aisha Tripp. What influences me most about Aisha is how she wears so many hats, namely as a playwright, a producer of theater and media, an educator, and an activist. In our talk, she reflects on the impact of the storytellers in her family, the importance of reading writers like Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, and learning about the history of Oakland's Black Panther Party, acknowledging these historical figures and movements as paving the way for her own artistic and academic endeavors. She also takes us through the ups, downs, middles, and any other directions taken in the ever capricious relationship that artists have with the work that pushes toward their vision. Most importantly, she comes back around to her conviction for sharing stories in the first place, saying that she wanted to create stories that empower, that encourage and start social discourse, as well as giving advice to be brave and bold enough in order to really pursue what makes you happy. My, my guest on today is Aisha Tripp. Hey! Yay. So you probably recognize uh, Aisha because she has her own podcast at KUSF uh, that airs live every Sunday morning. Yes, we do. Yay. The Feed You So podcast. Y'all tune in with us. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> so I am super honored to have you here because you... Um, hosted a, a workshop about a year and a couple months ago. Yeah, it was down in the basement. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it totally just informed me of like what it takes to really invest your time, energy, your passion into mm. what a podcast is. Podcasts are like all the craze right now. Yeah, it's a, it's a trend. It's trending hard. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think the problem of like getting into podcasting and like really sticking with it it's kind of the same as like whenever you want to start a band but you don't know how to play an instrument (laughs) it takes a lot of like research like honing different skills thinking about what you really want to talk about that was and I wanted to mention this what struck me in uh, the workshop was that you had said and this was part of like your presentation uh, you quoted um uh, Langston Hughes, yes. the prerequisite of writing is having something to say. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so applicable to um, not only writing, but I mean, writing goes into like basically any media nowadays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I think that that was just so like it echoes in my head. Like, yep. I think it's so true. Because yeah. it speaks to what you said in terms of like, you're trying to figure out what exactly do I want to talk about? What exactly what is my topic? Who is my audience? But essentially, what do you have to say? Mm-hmm. And what do you want to say? Just get it off the chest and say it, you know? And then from there, you start the planning and the processing and everything. But at the end of the day, if something's on your spirit, go after it, let it out. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. <laughs> you have to like have your passion, have your voice mm. to, to, to unleash what is you know true to your heart and like what you want to say. Mm-hmm. And then to like, you know, like organize it, structure it a little <laughs> bit, you know, like put some, some labor into how you're going to... Uh, you know, unleash that. Yeah, and the follow through is real because a lot of people will say that they want to do something, but only a few people really show up to do it. 
Yeah. So you know how that goes. But you doing it. You doing it here. We're here now with your show. So I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, guys. Thanks for tuning in with us. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, So, um, yeah, not to get too punny, but like you, you totally planted a seed, um, which ties into like the title of your show. Um, uh, the seeds you sow. I am from a small town in um, the East Bay called Pittsburgh. Um, We call it Pittsburgh with no H because we don't hate. Um, Pittsburgh is about 20, 30 minutes outside of Oakland. But I grew up between Pittsburgh and Oakland because my mother and her family is from Oakland. So I spent my weekends and all of like my holidays at my grandmother and my cousin's house. But Pittsburgh is where I went to school, where I played soccer. Um, Also went to school up in Concord and Walnut Creek. So I've lived in different parts of the Bay, but my two bases of home is Pittsburgh and Oakland, like Bay Area all day. But upon graduating um, from high school, went on to San Diego State, studied abroad in Singapore, was out in Chicago and Wisconsin for a few years for graduate school. So I was in other places, but I came back to the Bay. And this is where my home is at the end of the day. So, yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you've been all over. Like, you've been, yeah. like, <laughs> a, a, like in, across the globe and, mm-hmm. like, in the Midwest, which is where I'm from. Hey, uh, Midwest. Sh- yeah. <laughs> so Chicago, yeah, I um, just moved from St. Louis. So I lived there for about oh, okay. four years. I have not been to St. Louis. I have I gotta go. I heard the yeah. barbecue's good. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Barbecue and um, like a St. Louis, they call them St. Louis mistakes. Uh, toasted mm. ravioli. Oh my gosh. Okay, I'm getting yeah. hungry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still getting used to like all of the different like mm-hmm. um, Bay Area, little like, small cities in between the Concords yeah. and Pleasant Hills and Lafayettes mm-hmm. and Union Cities <laughs> and all that. So you know. It's a process. <laughs> yeah, because they're like all pretty closely like mm-hmm. knit. It's just a matter of like knowing where they are in. And the interesting to thing is, I don't mean to get too off topic, but mm-hmm. especially with like a lot of the gentrification that's going on right now in the Bay yeah. Area. So you know, Oakland has a history, a very strong history with the Black Panther Party, mm-hmm. um, having a very strong Black presence because a lot of people migrated from the South to Oakland, particularly West Oakland in the '40s and '50s. So that's what my family did. So in any case. In the 80s, when the crack era was going on, there were a group of black people who made the decision on their own to go out further. So I feel like my parents, my best friends were part of that narrative of people who didn't per se get pushed out, but made a decision like we're actually going to go a little further out. But we're still connected to Oakland because of our family and cousins and stuff. So I feel like there's a narrative around that that's not really discussed because a lot of people just think about, oh, everybody's getting pushed out, which is true. But there were people that were making a decision to leave, but then still stay connected. And like for the kids, like especially for like black kids, myself and like all my friends out in Pittsburgh, it was very interesting growing up because even though if you were in Pittsburgh, most of your friends either had family in Oakland, Mm -hmm. Richmond or the city. And it was always a thing like, where's your family from? Well, my family's from Oakland. Oh, my family's from the city. Oh, my family's from Richmond. So it's, it's, it's a narrative that I think it's overlooked sometimes. And I think it's good to put that out there. And I feel like I'm a part of that population of people who know that dynamic between living like in Pittsburgh or going to school in Concord, but still being very connected to an urban city like Oakland. So Shout out to both places. Yeah. Put that out there. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Because I think there is a misconception mm-hmm. for, like, at least nationally, or some people who live in California who don't understand that, like, just because, um, especially in San Francisco and the Bay Area, people think that it's, like, this super duper, like, permanently socially progressive place. And it's like, nah, no, nah, no, no. I got stories. <laughs> yeah. And. I I totally like moving here from the Midwest and especially St. Louis, which is 
getting, I mean, even more whenever I was uh, moving over here, like, I mean, the racial divide because of a lot of institutional systemic things that were happening. Uh, and it, especially with, I mean, this is a huge conversation of um, police brutality. Mm. Um, the Mike Brown murder um, definitely was sort of like the catalyst of how our, um, like the entire like city of St. Louis started to realize, oh yeah, we've definitely been segregated mm-hmm. this entire time. That tragedy um, just brought it to the surface where yeah. it was known nationally. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm not like being like, oh, we should have like some terrible thing happen in uh, in San Francisco or in the Bay Area in general to to bring that to light. But for people to somehow know that this is going on, well, the, it needs to change. You know, and the interesting thing is you bring that up about Mike Brown, because I think the thing about the Bay Area is, yes, it is a very diverse place. Mm-hmm. You will get all types of different people. And I've been blessed and fortunate enough to have friends from all different walks of life. Mm-hmm. And there is an element to where people are mixing and mingling, but there also is another element where people still are segregated. Mm-hmm. Because you could look at the line between a place like Oakland and you go through the Caldecott Tunnel and it's Orinda and it's mm-hmm. super white. And if we even look back to 2009, when Oscar Grant was killed mm-hmm. at Fruitvale BART station and they had a Johannes Meserly support rally in Walnut Creek, in Walnut Creek. This is in the Bay Area. So people go, oh my gosh, I can't believe. But it's like, nah, it happens everywhere. It just looks different. That's yeah. all. So I feel it. So. It's, yeah. We gotta do better, y'all. We, we getting there though. We having conversations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It's definitely, yeah, nobody is like, um, exempt from mm-hmm. this. I think that's another problem is that mm-hmm. people, especially in the Bay Area, think that they're exempt from talking about hmm. the problems of it mm-hmm. because we have this veil, this veneer of social progressive, like, mm-hmm. I didn't mean politics, having that on pet. But no, whenever you think that like that, whenever you, that invites complacency. Yep. And that mm-hmm. is where, like, you know, these not talking and not being more exposed to 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 more conversations you know yeah. like i think that people just just assume everything's okay and it's just not not to like go around like woke bashing the <laughs> crap out of everybody but you know like calling people in i guess instead of yeah. calling them out and just being like hey we need to like resolve things and not act like nothing wrong is happening and it's a process y'all because even yeah. being woke you know you, you think about it like this when you first wake up in the morning you don't wake up like oh i'm awake <laughs> You know, you, you ease into your day. You yeah. got to ease into your wokeness. And yeah. you don't, you know, but yeah, conversations at the end of the day. It's all about having an honest conversation. What we have in common is we're writers. Yay, for the writers. Yes. <laughs> I love, I feel like um, we're very much kindred, kindred spirits in that regard and then also another layer of that is like social justice and just like a curiosity about different different perspectives different walks of life Mm. um so when was the first time that you realized you were drawn to storytelling whether it was a you know a book movie (laughs) um tv shows this may sound a little corny, but I was reflecting on this when you sent me these questions and storytelling is in my DNA as it for all of us. But when I really think back, like two things stick out to me, primarily like the family I come from. Mm-hmm. I think about my grandparents. I think about my great uncle Bobby, my aunt Frankie, um, all the stories I heard growing up from them 
moving from, you know, Louisiana or Mississippi out to the West Coast. I think about stories about my parents growing up or how they met each other. Like everything in my family is a story. Like everybody's always talking. Everybody's always sharing. And even going back to my parents, when I was reflecting growing up, they're big readers. Like my parents growing up were huge Star Trek nerds. Like it's kind of funny or whatever. I think that's how like they, you know, fell in love, whatever. But um, growing up with a family of readers and a family of very boisterous, talkative people that shared what happened to them when it happened and coming up with all types of different just you know charisma just really was already in me and so I think it just came natural to me to just fall in love with reading to fall in love with movies to fall in love with theater anything that told a story anything that was some type of expression and so that's what I mean about it being in my DNA and then in particular if I had to like you know, pinpoint one exact moment in my life where I was like, oh my God, I can actually be like a writer. Shout out to Miss Carrie at Rio Vista Elementary School in my second grade class. She was my teacher. And every Tuesday and Thursday from 11 a.m. to 1215 was writing workshop. And this was an opportunity for us little um, second graders in class to take the time for that hour and 15 minutes to write whatever we wanted. And so this sounds kind of like what? But when I was eight years old, I said, wait, wait, what? So you mean I could like write my own book like Roll Doll? You mean I can like, you know, create my own story? And then like the cool thing about it was, too. You could write your story and then it would have to go through the editing process, a.k.a. through Miss Carrie, and then have to go through a peer review process through one of your classmates. And then it got approved and then you got to get it published and it would be put in the school or the um, classroom library. And so that within itself was like a spark in me that made me realize I can be an author. I can be a writer. I can create stories. And then I saw the stories that I was writing people liked. Because I think one of the first stories I wrote was, um, it was like a remix. I was really big on remixes back in the day. I did some like Snow White and the Missing Dwarf or something like that. Like just something. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, storytelling's just always been in me. And, you know, even me and my friends were talking about this last week while watching the Warriors game. We reflected on Disney movies, you know, or shows like A Different World or Martin, you know, anything that brought laughter and joy and also anything that reflected something within you. And I could, when I look back, I think that's why I was so drawn to it. And it just always felt like something I wanted to do. And even too, going into um, middle school, uh, shout out to my best friend, Asia Jackson. My best friend. She's an actress too. She's got cast in the play. Um, but uh, I used to write on these storyboards for this R&B group that I like named Imagine and also B2K. That's a whole other story. Yes. And there was like a whole online community of girls who would write stories and it would turn into this whole following. So I was on there writing these stories, sharing them with my best friends, seeing the reaction that people were given. I was like, yo, I love to do this. So it really just stems back to that type of stuff. That takes me back. I mean, that's incredible that your second grade teacher would... I mean, totally wasn't an ageist about who has the ability or the power to 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 create a story and to be right? an author. I know. And it really and it really shows how for young children, and I think about this with my godchildren and my nieces and nephews, when you see something that lights them up and makes them excited, feed into that. You know, encourage that, you know, help them with that, make them practice with that because it really sticks with them. You know, we become adults, but at the end of the day, like we got bills to pay, we gotta do things, you know, life gets hard, whatever. But, you know, we still have to pursue what makes us happy. And it's hard to do that. And it's a privilege I'm recognizing to do that. So I'm very thankful to God that I can pursue what I love to do. 
that's really cool that the teacher not only invited you to sort of you know like uh, embrace your own stories and create you know different characters different different parts of stories but also too here's how it can be actualized yeah here's how it can become real for other people too mm-hmm. and not just stuck inside your own like corner mm. of the playground yeah yeah because it because storytelling is a sharing process mm-hmm. it's not just something it may start with you but even the idea sometimes doesn't even come from you. It comes from like the experiences that you've endured or what you observed or what you feel. And it's still in connection to something else outside of you. And then it becomes this exchange. So greed. Man. Shout out to Miss Kara. I need to find her. I mean, <laughs> I tried to like Google her. I can't find her or whatever. I'm going to find her one day and like really give her a big hug. She was a bomb teacher. For real. sharing it's really important to not just keep your story to yourself I mean sometimes it's a process and you need to work things out but I think at the end of the day you write because or you have some type of expression yeah on page or like in drawings or whatever because you're dying for somebody else to feel the same and to share Hmm. that sort of that sort of emotion that's buried under all of the work that you do yeah uh, I just read Generation of Dreams, oh, and I, yeah, so Aisha's uh, the author of three plays, um, and you had uh, two of them uh, produced, like, into, like, a full-length, like, All three production. were produced. All three. Yeah. Into, uh, play, into, like, a play in, and I want to say in Walnut Creek? Yeah, so um, An Angel Came Down and Generations of Dreams were produced at the Lesher Center for the Arts by my nonprofit Don't Even Trip Productions. And The Skin I'm In was produced um, at my alma mater, San Diego State, and that was produced through the African American Student Drama Association. It's a word mouth. Like... (laughs) (laughs) So you played one of of the characters in the play, Corinne, and... How okay? So did you play um, like in each of the plays? Did you? So all three plays, um, I had the opportunity to direct and write. Mm-hmm. Um, with the skin I'm in, I made a quick cameo. Just kind of was I was at a party scene, and then with the angel came down, I did play the character Ronnie, and with Generation of Dreams, I did play the character Corinne. Mm-hmm. I did, and I think going forward, I, I like to act, but it's not like my number one thing. But it's fun to play the character that is not like me at all Mm -hmm. that's what I like to do I like to tap into the person that does not reflect who I mean you know like what Corinne's character (laughs) yeah so she ain't the entire time I was reading I was like just thinking in the back of my mind like I was still following the storyline and the like the the vitality of um like what the story was but in the back of my mind I was like this is not Aisha What was it like seeing your story, like, in, like, human form, like, the story, like, in the flesh? So the first time around for The Skin I'm In, because that was the first play that was produced, 
Um, I wrote that play in particular because the African-American Student Drama Association, they were dedicated to producing student written plays. Mm -hmm. I was a film major at the time. Right. And so I came to a show that my roommate, Asia, best friend, she was in and she was a business major and became a theater major after that. So shout out to ASDA and to Shani for starting that organization on our campus. It transformed all of our lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And also the point of that organization was to not only produce student written plays, but plays that were speaking to the black perspective on San Diego State campus. So it was a very important um, organization. But in any case, when I went to go see the play and I found out there were students writing this, I was like, oh, well, I can write a play. You know, I I write stories. I'm in film. I can do this. So I wrote The Skin I'm In, which was loosely based off of my experience at San Diego State. It's not completely based, but just some of the experiences. But in any case, I wrote the play. Asia got a hold of it and presented it to the board. And so when I got back from Singapore, Asia was like, they want to put it on. You got to direct it. And I was like, but I'm a film major. What do I know about theater? And she was like, it don't matter. You got to do it. And so it was very nerve wracking. It was very scary. But I think that play represented the courage that it takes, not only just within myself, but within the community, because we all had to come together and put on this play. And at that time, when it was being produced, there was another play on campus um, being produced called um, Hamlet Blood in the Brain which was a remake of Hamlet, but set like in the 1980s, like crack era. And it was like this whole controversy around people in the play using the N-word who weren't black. And there were also talks on campus because people were like, there's more to our story than like black people on drugs. We want a story that really reflects us. So doing the skin I'm in was our form of saying, we got a story to tell too. So in any case, let's answer your question. By the time it came the, the night where the curtain went up and there was so much work that went into that, shout out to the entire cast. Shout out to Vogue Robinson, who was the, the assistant director, my right hand throughout the entire process. When it went up there, I was literally like shaking. I was in the sound booth like this is scary. I'd never had up until this point a full hundred page plus piece work come to life and I'll never forget what my dad told me the night behind stage he was like well you know if nobody comes back by intermission you got to get another job right <laughs> thanks I was dad. like yeah shout out to Thomas <laughs> Tripp for keeping it real but they came back <laughs> so but when it came to life and the actors and the music and the story and the flow it was just a surreal moment And it also was humbling because it reaffirmed just what we were just talking about, the shared experience. Like, this is not my play. This is a play that first and foremost, God gave me the gift to write. First and foremost, just straight up. And then secondly, it was the actors, the costume designers, the sound design, everybody coming together. It was our piece. And that's what got me into theater because I was like, yo, like we took something and we made it happen. Even if it only went up for one night, it was one night none of us will ever forget. And so it it was just amazing to see it come to life and really just like it was like breathing. It was no longer just sitting on my computer. It was actually like Crystal, Shanice, they're alive right now. Oh, my God, Damien, Rashad, like, this is real, you know? That's the characters, y'all. Y'all like, who's she talking about? (laughs) I like working with actors that really are dedicated to the story and to, like, the performance element of, like, theater or film. Mm -hmm. Not just, you know, someone told you you was cute. Now you want to be an actor. Like, I mean, that's cool. That's what you want to do. But (laughs) I like working with people that are really into the art. And Mm -hmm. I feel like when you go through the casting process and I've I've learned this, like, you know, that's a whole that's a whole other episode. I can tell you, like, about the behind the scenes, because each Mm -hmm. play took about, I would say, 
in terms of production, it led about three to four months of rehearsal that led up to it. So there's a lot of things that go on. Like with Generation of Dreams, for example, we casted our lead actor and six weeks before the show, we had to fire him. Because with Generation of Dreams, that was the first play where it was funded directly by the community. We um, had an Indiegogo campaign and raised over $4,000. So I had this pressure, not only as an artist, but also from a business perspective, mm-hmm. to make sure that, like, you know, of course I always want to, you know, live up to the audience. But I'm like, people put their money into this. Like, mm-hmm. this isn't just my money. This is, like, the community's money. And so our actors got paid, you know. So we were really, you know, being very professional and... You know, the actor we had to let go, it got to a point where he just wasn't memorizing his lines. It just wasn't working. And I was like, for the sake of the story, we have to let you go. And it was a really hard decision to make even as a leader because I was like, well, what is my cast going to think of me? Like, who is this girl? Like, does she know who she want to cast? But Mm -hmm. those are those humbling moments that you have to, like, learn that you're not going to always get it right. Sometimes you are going to fall. But it's better to admit that maybe you made the the wrong decision than try to deny it. And then we had... um, Shout out to Eric. He was um, a part of the ensemble cast. He stepped in and took over as the lead and killed it. So it's like one of those, you know, the process. It's, it's there's a lot. <laughs> it's funny with the Angel Came Down play in particular, that play within itself, I remember right after the skin I'm in, I came back home to the Bay Area and I had three goals in mind. I was like, I want to put on a show and produce it myself with my friends more so, not just myself, but produce a show, live in a random city and go to grad school. Those are my three goals. And I wrote An Angel Came Down within like right after Obama got elected. Um, So it took me about maybe six months to write that play. And in any case, when you're talking about friends and stuff, we did the rehearsals and me and my roommate, shout out to Ariel. She's one of my best friends too. We did the um, rehearsals in our living room. You know, we had props and everything. One night we were in rehearsal and the cops came (laughs) <laughs> because what? one of our neighbors thought there was a domestic dispute going on because the play is intense. Uh, each story is not each story is very different. Mm-hmm. Not one is the same at all. So it really is like you go up to your close friends who are also artists. You're like, yo, I got this story. You want to help me put it on? And they do. And everybody wears their hat. It's like, yo, I could do the, the graphic design. Yo, I could do the costume. Yo, I could do marketing. It's really just looking at like your circle of people and recognizing we all got something to give and we can all create something great together. What are you in this for sort of thing? It's like, oh, for community, for like combining all of our talents together. Yeah. And believing in a shared sort of spirit of like what the arts represent for each one of us and one project together. And I think like, especially when I think about an angel came down, cause now I'm thinking about like what each play represents. We're talking about this. Mm-hmm. Like I'm thinking how the skin I'm in represented courage and community. I'm thinking about how angel came down really represents vision and perseverance mm-hmm. and the vision in the sense that we all had a vision to do this and we all could see where it was going to be even before it happened. And then also the vision in sense in the sense of being creative where, where we were at, because we all have full time jobs. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I was working at um, the Oakland airport serving as a as a waiter at the Chili's. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I had to, you know, find a way to make sure I could talk with my manager like, yo, can I get that 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. shift? So I could make my minimum money for, you know, make my rent, whatever, and then make sure I got enough to put on the show and then get home by three o'clock to get ready for rehearsal at four. You know, so like the vision in terms of how can I make this work? Where can I like, you know, because sometimes I think 
this is just my opinion, but I think when like we're pursuing something we want or we're, you know, especially in the arts, we think it has to be a certain way, but it's not. Mm-hmm. So you really got to look at what do you have and how can you make it work? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what everybody I did um, like contributed, like from Ariel, Damon, um, Asia, Fontaine, like all of us, like we all had different things going on, but instead of like, we could have just looked at it like, oh, well, we just got our jobs. We can't make this work. No, we can make it work. We're going to work around it. We're going to find a theater. And like renting the theater at Lesher Center for the Arts, it was only at that time, I think like, I'm trying to remember, it was less than like $600, which is what I was expecting. So it was something like that. Don't quote me on that exactly. I wish I had the numbers, but it was something where it's like, this is doable. Yeah. You know, you just got to make it work. You got to just rearrange some things or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that um, that saying where they say um, people pray for a cake, mm-hmm. but they get the eggs and the flour and the batter and they complain. It's like, but you got to make it, you know, and you don't, you know, you're going to mess up a little bit, but get creative with it. Have fun with it. That's part of the process. So really do have to sort of not I mean even within yourself not taking no for an answer like you're gonna get some people Mm -hmm. who say no but you're the first person who needs to not say no to yourself yes to make the time yes very very true you guys better take that okay that's a gold (laughs) right there because we do live in a world where we're already indirectly and directly told we're not enough or we need this or you got to be this or you got to get that so you're already battling that and then on top of that, there are going to be people out, people out there who are going to tell you no, but you shouldn't be the one telling yourself no. You you may have to like reflect on what you need to do better. You know, there's nothing wrong with constructive criticism or productive, you know, um, things that are going to make you better. But, you know, allow yourself to try. Because I think sometimes people get so caught up in their head, like, well, what about this? What about that? And they they talk themselves out of it before they even begin to do it, you know, and they let so many things pass them by. I think about... Um, this one pastor said, God, it was like back like in 2009. And he was saying, you look at the cemetery and he said, it's one of the richest places on earth because there are so many people who died. He was like books that were never written, songs that were never sang, stories that were never told because people died with that. And I personally believe that we all got something. I'm not saying it got to be something extraordinary and big, but you you are here. Mm-hmm. You have something to give. You have something to, you know, share And allow yourself to find out whatever that is. Let it be sharing a story or I don't know, you know, sharing a plate of food. I don't know. Like (laughs) whatever it might be. I don't know. But, you know, that's something I think that's um, we have to advocate for because we do live in a time where a lot of people are being silenced to just express themselves and find like their purpose. And it's a privilege. I just have to say that it is a privilege because I don't want to stand on this platform as if it's easy to do that because I recognize the support systems I come from. I recognize the fact that I was nourished in an environment that allowed me to do what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And so I want to be in a position to help others to do the same because it's it's, it is it's um, it's a lot easier said than done. But at the end of the day, you got to do it. Yeah, you know. I love, I love all of that. I'm trying to pick out, <laughs> I'm trying to absorb, I and especially like giving and acknowledging like certain privileges. And I know that some people do have like hard, like they have kids or they have yeah, you know different yeah. responsibilities. That I mean, some people don't have the resources from college, you know, to build certain skills or just confidence. Um, but you know, you're yeah. right. Here's like some motivation I use for myself. And we were talking about this on the podcast last week. Um, Sometimes like for me, 
just and this may be applicable to some, maybe applicable not to others, but okay, I'm a writer, right? And I think back to one of my favorite writers like Langston Hughes, okay? Back like in the 20s, he didn't have an Apple laptop. You know, he didn't have a platform like the way we did. Like he had the Defender, like, you know, he was working with, you know, W. Du Bois and everything like that. But there were so many things that were against writers like him, Zora Neale Hurston mm-hmm. of their time. And they didn't stop. We were talking about Frederick Douglass. He was a slave and he wrote an autobiography. Like, you know, so I don't know. I think about people like that who were in certain situations. And I'm in my mind, I'm like, how did you like what what type of negro courage or power was in you to persevere but they did Mm -hmm. so to me i'm like that's in my blood Mm -hmm. that inspires me that motivates me and it makes me feel like i don't have an excuse but i also will offer empathy and patience to other people who are still finding their footing because i still struggle with things too so it's a balance between that a balance between staying encouraged but also staying in line Mm-hmm. And not getting ahead of yourself and not thinking that, you know, not getting too full of yourself, too, thinking, well, I did it. You need to do it, too. Like, no, like my story is not going to be similar to the next person's story. So I got to be respectful of that. So let me listen to them. Let me encourage them. But, you know, I, I use those example of like past writers and pioneers of our history. And they, because of them, we're sitting here even having this conversation. love uh those writers too mm-hmm. especially Zora Neale Hurston yes. because she never even saw her fame she didn't do no. she was like buried like she didn't have enough money she had an unmarked have, grave yeah she had an unmarked <laughs> grave so she definitely wasn't doing it for like likes on Facebook you know <laughs> it's like and to to just think about like why why am I doing this you mm. know am I doing it but even though the validation mm. part of like sharing you know stories and all of that is important like there's a certain type of motivation it's it's just like this is more important outside of like being mainstream it would be great to be mainstream because you know <laughs> you need the, the more the merrier in like yeah. certain causes because there's a lot of not so desirable um True. narratives going on in the mainstream uh but yeah that's so important to think about like uh your past, you know, who influences you and what did they have to overcome and to think about that because definitely there's always going to be something. (laughs) Everybody got a story and there's always going to be something. So, you know, self-pity, it's a, it's a real drug and, you know, you being real with yourself. I know I've been there before where I've been, I've, I've struggled with walking depression. I've been down there before and self-pity and all that self-loathing stuff it is not a pretty place to be. And it takes a lot to get yourself out of that. But it goes back to support systems. It goes back to self-awareness, checking in, mm-hmm. all those different things. And so, and I think our culture kind of creates that more. It's more of like a self. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we same, same about the podcast last week, too. We were like, what if we had social media pages that weren't about ourselves, but, uh, but about celebrating other people? Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. that balance or whatever, like that balance between loving yourself in a good holistic way, but not like in a self-serving, validating type of way. I love your quote about social media. Um, and I think you said like, uh, like you, you use so- social media, but don't let it use you. Is yeah. that, mm-hmm. yeah. And to not like, I guess, over inflate sort of like this idea of like identity 
through social media and to mm. make sure, I guess, self-care is important. You know, yeah. mental health stuff is definitely important. But there's a time whenever you know, like, the integrity check of, like, I yeah. need to get up and do stuff that are for for other people, mm-hmm. for myself, too, to yeah. feel purposeful by interacting with other people because I'm not, like, helpless at the end of the day. Like, yep, yep. It's yeah. true, man. At the end of the day, like, we all have to make sure we're checking in with ourselves and make sure we find that balance between taking care of ourselves and then also making sure we're doing something that connects to a greater good. Mm -hmm. That's at least my philosophy on it. Basically, I mean, you're the creator of the Seed Do So, but now you've grown to have like sort of like a round table of hosts. Um, yeah, it's so funny because like originally um, it started off with, um, a, it still is like a rotating schedule, but there were mm-hmm. other people that were supposed to be on the show. But essentially the main founding uh, members were myself, Damon and Michael. Mm-hmm. And then going into season two, Ashley came on. And then mm-hmm. once Ashley was on, that was our team. It was like solidifying, this is the field, this is who we are as like an entire podcast. And even right now, you know, we're still, you know, it's a process. We're still finding our footing and grounding, but um, everybody's owning more of like their own roles. Like shout out to Ashley, who is black girl magic all day. Like she manages our entire social media page. I do not like social media. She 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 is fantastic. Yeah, right. She does all of that. And she is fantastic Mm -hmm. on the show. And I mean, you should, listen to the CZ so yeah. to find out for yourself but yeah like working full time she just graduated from UPenn with her master's in educational entrepreneurial leadership wow. you know just a woman of all trades and just really gives her all to everything that she does mm-hmm. plus she's starting other business ventures too on top of the CZ so so we have her we have Damon who himself is also too father, mentor um, part of the anchor program which is a program that helps um First time, um, well, more so individuals who are looking to get into the Marine Time Corps mm-hmm. and trying to get more entry level positions. So he's working with more vulnerable populations. Mm-hmm. So he does that. Um, Michael is the varsity basketball coach for Ensenal High School. Mm-hmm. So everybody on the show is very much involved in the community mm-hmm. and really doing great work. And I'm just so thankful for my host. We've been through the ups and downs and we still heal. We still yeah. heal. <laughs> Him, him the name like Deacon Mike because he's like <laughs> so, like a wise old soul but yeah. isn't he like the youngest of he your... is yeah. well no actually Ashley's Ashley the youngest is. wait no 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 yeah Ashley's the youngest uh, Michael's second youngest and then me and Damon we both 84 babies <laughs> um, but Michael and like he's always had that kind of old man spirit and it's funny because Ashley kind of has like a wise spirit to her as well mm-hmm. and it's funny because even though like me and Damon are like the um, older ones at times, I feel like we're the more goofier ones. At times, <laughs> I'm definitely goofy. I know people hear that all the time on the show, so I don't really be holding back. So <laughs> it, just, it just comes out. I like <laughs> love. I love. Like whenever I first started listening to your podcast, I was just like, I just love how like you're totally like humble about like I'm not trying to be perfect or like super like NPR radio voice like I'm just being me and like if I screw up on anything like whatever that's just my that's I'm rolling with it and. and Um, it's funny because I was reflecting on like, like the seed you sow anyway. And 
um, like what started it. And I uh, I was going through my phone and I found the quote that made me think about why we started the show. Mm-hmm. And there's a quote that I found. Um, it says, God changes caterpillars into butterflies, sands into pearls, coals into diamonds by using time and pressure. He is working on all of us. And I thought a lot about, you know, the seed and how like the seed really is just the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so... I thought about wanting to create a show that talks about the beginning and the process of things. And then also, too, you know, another reason why we made the show was because there were a lot of conversations between myself and Damon in particular, because Damon was always like, we need to do a podcast. We need to do a podcast. And, you know, we would always talk about, you know, how there's at times a lot of negative images in our media. Mm -hmm. And we believe that's not all that that is going on, especially in the black community. There are a lot of thriving, amazing things happening. And we wanted to put out that positive message. And we do believe too, that the media you consume, it's a seed. It's a seed of information Mm -hmm. that goes into you. And that seed has the power to influence and bring forth whatever fruit. So I think it's important for people to be mindful about who they're listening to, what they're watching. And so the seed you sow is a mixture of that. We're planting those positive seeds and we're also highlighting the seed itself because mm-hmm. we're in the process itself. We're still blooming. We're still growing, you know? So it's a mixture of all those different things. You know, and it just really, I think the show itself has, you know, it's made some changes and developed over time, but we have uh, made a commitment to stick to that identity mm-hmm. and really also sticking to the identity with speaking about what's on our heart. Because, you know, we were talking about earlier, you know, in today's world, especially there there are a lot of podcasts out there. And, you know, it's kind of like, well, then how do you stand out? That's what um, Nola asked us last week when she was on our show. And it's like, well, one, we're not going to think about how to stand out. We're just going to just be who we are. And the people that connect with us, they're going to connect with us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talked about, too, it's about the consistency Because, you know, a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to start this podcast. I'm going to get like a million followers. Yeah. And it's like, you got to build. You got to take time. You know, when we first started recording, we like our first like average download was like 25. Mm -hmm. You know, it took time before we got over 100. But it took, you know, we getting there. And but at the end of the day, it's not about the quantity. It's about the quality. Mm -hmm. And if you have one to two listeners who are loyal to you and connect with what you're doing, that's what matters at the end of the day. On top of the fact that I've seen with my hosts, like because Michael... Damon and Ashley have all expressed this on air and off air in different capacities, how much they've grown by being on the show. Mm-hmm. And even for myself, it's about the consistency because mm-hmm. I know a growth area for me has been as an artist. I feel like I've been really good with starting things. I've been really challenging myself. How do I make things sustainable and last over time? We had a radio show when I was in graduate school Mm -hmm. called the Velvet Rope Radio. And I was actually just, what was it on? Hold on. Let me look that up right now. 91.7 Madison Radio. And we too had our intro and we too had our outro and we had like, we'd have like our topic. We had, um, we had the ratchet report. (laughs) (laughs) We had different elements within the show. And um, it was like, kind of like the same thing, you know, where all you had to do was get training on the studio go through um, a couple of uh, three, two, three hour training classes. And then myself and my other colleague in the Afro AM studies, um, Keegan was a host. Um, Jared, AKA DJ Infinity was our DJ. And then another student um, named D who was um, pursuing her PhD 
we were all on the show and just talking about things that were going on. And it was like our one hour um, 10 a.m. show that we had on campus. And it was dope. And so and I always loved radio, even dating back to when I was like eight years, eight years old. Eight is the age. Was it eight? <laughs> It was when the Talk Boy came out. Remember Talk Boy? Talk Boy. Is that um Home Alone? Oh. Um You ever seen Home Alone? Yeah. Do you remember it's Home a- Alone 2 Lost in New York? Maybe. Look it up when you get a chance cuz uh Macaulay Culkin aka Kevin McAllister mm-hmm. had this recorded uh, uh contraption cuz back then it's like a Walkman, right? It's the 90s. Yeah. And it was called the Talk Boy and I was like, "Oh my god, I want that." And I got it for Christmas and you could record yourself. So I used to record myself doing all types of reports and doing all types of ridiculous things in my backyard. So mm-hmm. another form of expression. <laughs> I love I love certain aspects of social media and technology, but I kind of miss sort of like the D, de- not as much of like an accumulation of consuming it in so many different. Yeah, because it really takes away the it takes away the awe. Like, remember when, like, your favorite artist was about to drop an album? Mm -hmm. It was like a buildup. It was like, I got to go to the Sam Goody because Aaliyah's about to drop her newest album, Mm -hmm. One in a Million, and it's been three years since her last album, and oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. And getting the artwork and reading the thank yous and putting it in your CD player and sitting down next to it or, you know, things like that, the awe, the wonder. Or remember, like, you know, you're watching TV and you're looking at the TV guy and you miss the channel you're trying to find and you got to, you know, run back to the kitchen, get your food real quick and be like, all right, let me see. <laughs> really quick, you know, like those type of things, the ability to just wait, the ability to have ah, like mm-hmm. that's slowly just depleting. There was a documentary just uh, released on um, was it Dateline called Screen Time? Screen Time. Hmm. That was really interesting. Get a chance, check it out. Yeah, yeah, it really talked about the consumption of how much we're on our phones and our computers and. What is that really doing in terms of how like we're interacting with ourselves and stuff like that? So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a. I mean, it's yeah. Everybody's different too. Like the balance. Like some yep. people are really addicted to it, and some people are just okay with it. Yeah. Um. They still know how to be like not oblivious. Like if they're on the bus or Bart or wherever, yeah. they still are aware. Like if an older person needs help, you know, getting onto the bus instead of just like zoned out. Yeah. Um, it's bad on your neck too. Yeah. <laughs> and your hand. In your eyes and your brain, and, <laughs> and it turns hot and it's energy, and then the screen cracks like mine right now. Oh, you know? no. It's okay, whatever. So, I think this really ties into sort of like the academic lens, like a mm, critical lens okay. with the art. So what has your relationship with education, uh, since you've gone, you've definitely had your share of time uh, dedicated to higher education, uh, or even since childhood and adulthood been like in terms of maintaining and strengthening the creative voice spark uh, like, have you encountered moments or phases where you felt like wearing the academic hat could overshadow the creative spark of your mm. voice? So it's interesting when I look back, like, you know, to like the skin I'm in or me making the decision at San Diego State to be a film major. And in terms of like when I made the decision to be a filmmaker, right, I was like, I wanted to create stories that 
empower, mm-hmm. that encourage and start, start social discourse. And so even at that time when I was 19 coming into college, I didn't really have like the academic language to really articulate that, but just mm-hmm. to know that I want to tell a story that matters. But in my film department, a lot of everything was focused on, well, how does the shot look and what camera are you using? And it was more so about the vibe and the aesthetic, which is important, but I was like, I'm into the story. Mm-hmm. And so I think I, over when I look back, I've always stayed true to that. And just naturally, I think by being true to what matters in my heart, it then connected to the world of academia. Mm-hmm. Because when I moved to Chicago, originally my goal was to go to Northwestern Mm -hmm. and um, I was pursuing their MFA program and I applied, I got interviewed, I got waitlisted and I was denied. He's like, I would yeah. almost just want to know, like, up front. Oh, God, like, they yeah. told me. They had me on that wait list, like, for four months, too. Oh. And it's a very competitive program. Get over, like, 500 applications. Only, like, 50 people get interviewed. Only 15 people get in. Yeah. So I was like, oh, you know, devastated. What am I doing? Oh, my God. <laughs> but, you know, perseverance, faith, get yourself up and try again. Learning all that, right? This is back in 2011. My friend Frankie at the time was at U- the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He was like, yo, I know you came to Chicago with this idea of going to Northwestern, but he was like, you've also been out here taking the time to also learn about your history. Because I also would spend weekends at the Harold Washington Library reading about the Black Panthers, the writers, you know, just learning more about the people who paved the way for me to do what I was doing. So just through the natural progression, I started having more of an understanding and appreciation for the culture and also for the history. And he was like, you should apply to UW-Madison. You could do African-American studies and you could do a whole work around the playwrights and authors and writers that paved the way for you. And you can also connect that to your creative work. And I never thought about it like that. Mm -hmm. But it goes back to look at what you've been presenting. Where can you see how it can work? Mm -hmm. So then when I applied to UW-Madison, I got accepted, got offered a full ride. And it worked out perfectly and it introduced me to a whole other world of how to empower people through Mm -hmm. art because I was able to, and shout out to Craig Warner, who um, is actually retiring this year. Um, He was the department of the African-American students, um, Afro AM department, really came through for me, was um, head of my capstone thesis project. Um, And he always emphasized to us, he was like, look, we could sit up here and talk about all types of things in terms of race, poverty, classism, the culture, the history, blah, blah, blah. You can intellectually feel yourself all day, but what are you going to do with that information? Mm -hmm. And so he would always charge us to make sure whatever we were learning, that we took it out there into the community. And so we had like a film society that we ran Um, at the department. We had brown bag lunches where once a month, myself and colleagues, we had to present on the work that we were doing and get comfortable with talking in front of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also too, I was working at the Oak Hill Correctional Facility, um, teaching creative writing and African-American studies. And then on top of that, I had the opportunity to also work with the theater department at UW-Madison. And I got to teach um, theater for cultural and social awareness under the mentorship and guidance of Patrick Sims, who is now, I believe, vice provost of diversity at UW-Madison. So I say all that to say that these academic experiences, they didn't really become one or the other. Mm -hmm. They really just blended themselves. Of course, at the end of the day, there's academia politics Mm -hmm. and there's a certain way that one has to articulate and carry themselves. But academia, since it is a big form of the intellect and the education, there's a lot of still 
creativity within that in terms of what is your thesis project? What are you researching? What are you what message or what part of history are you trying to convey? Mm -hmm. And so I feel fortunate enough to have been able to take what I love and then also use it through the lens of education. Mm -hmm. Because after my experience in the Midwest, I came to discover that while the two most like, well, not the two most, but the places where I find a lot of love and just joy is in the classroom and on the stage or even in a recording studio, anything that shares information and allows authentic conversation and allows us to engage critically, you know, and I think that's where the academic part comes in because academia is going to push you to think beyond just what the surface is. That that's a perfect answer for people who are like worried about like do do I go to school for the arts? You know, mm. is academia something that kind of stifles that creative sort of what makes you feel like you aren't restricted? Mm. There's certain parameters I think that can or like the fear of getting burnt out. Oh yeah, we could talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about the whole episode burnout. <laughs> But I love that you just made this like uh, sort of like the balance of both, like one helps the other. You can't let one sort of like get lopsided more than the other that you need like ac academia to sort of frame, you know, different mm -hmm. aspects of what you're passionate about in the arts or in uh, different different social issues and using that as a way as like a tool to because academia, as much as I love education and learning, I think that if you get too much into it, like it over, like it becomes a classist sort of thing. Mm. To you, you know how some people are oh, like, yeah. love to hear themselves talk and sound smart. Yes. Intellectually <laughs> fill themselves all the time. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, at the end of the day, like that thing, that smart, whatever smarts you got, like that you're gaining this education from school that should be amplifying something that's for, for good, for art, for, you know, connection to people and making the world a better place. And I think all of that, like in your, I guess, like going from Chicago to uh, University of Madison, like to to realize like, oh, there's not just like one path of yep. what I wanted to do. You have to be open. Um, and it's interesting because even when you're bringing up like, you know, the arts and academia and like it makes me think about, you know, the pressure that people feel like in terms of picking like their major or things mm -hmm. like that, you know, and it's 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 a layered conversation and it's really dependent upon the individual there really isn't just one blanket statement like everybody should go to college everybody should do this like because even if you decide to go to college what type of college do you want to go to do you want to go to a state school do you want to go to a uc do you want to go to a private school to a liberal arts school like you know having the tools to navigate that first conversation with the type of school you want to go to and then i would say in the most simplistic way because i'm a creative right like so for me, already in my mind, even when people would say, oh, so you're a film major, what do you do, watch films all day? No, I don't. Like, I still had to complete all of my general education um, requirements. And for all of my film classes, let it be theory as well as practice-based, I had to fund those projects. I had to take time outside of the four-hour the theory-based classes to then create six to seven-minute films that would cost me $800 because, shout out to Ron Nager, he was like, I know we're going digital, but you're going to load a film camera. You're going to know what it's like to purchase $200 worth of 16 millimeter film that's only um, 12 minutes in length so you could figure out what shot specifically to take. 
So that type of like diligence, discipline, perseverance, those were the things that I had to learn the same way that the diligence and perseverance of maybe that a biology major had to learn mm -hmm. studying for, you know, a, um, an exam or a nursing major studying for the NCLEX, you know. So mm -hmm. there's all an underlying connection that there's going to require any type of hard work, determination, diligence in anything that you decide to major in. Let it be engineering, film, art, history, whatever. The question the person has to ask themselves is, is this what make is this? what makes you happy mm -hmm. and you have to be committed to that um, because at least from my own testimony by me sticking to what made me happy mm -hmm. things have always worked out I graduated into a recession so there were no jobs back in 2008 I had a degree in film and of course like yo it's a degree in film but I had to work at Starbucks mm -hmm. I had to work as a server and a bartender um, I had to work at the theater. I had to work at Groupon. I have, I've had all types of jobs. Okay. You make things work. And as a creative, that's what I had to do. And it's going to be different for somebody else, depending on what you're pursuing. But I feel like at the end of the day, you have to be brave and bold enough to really pursue what makes you happy and think about what that is critically that makes you happy. Not like what others told you is going to make you happy, but what makes you internally happy. That's going to give you peace at the end of the day. Is total and not only like uh, successful either, like because sometimes if you are doing like making straight A's or like if people mm. really dig your work, does that mean that you're happy? You know, like mm. does that and to really think about it that you're not pandering because you think this is what you should be doing, but because you're choosing to do it and because it makes you feel fulfilled and not just like successful, not just making money, but you're hustling to like towards your passion towards yep. something that is um always evolving and it's yeah like same like i worked like probably the still the majority of my work experience is like waiting tables whenever i first moved here mm -hmm. i mean i if anything i was just like this is what a starving artist is <laughs> in like sort of like a novelty way but also too i was just like i kind of hate waiting tables but still yeah. it's like what pays bills and that's just part of reality I love how you mentioned like the full roundedness of like what goes into the process because yes. as a you're a producer a lot of people don't know it seems kind of like an umbrella term like people are like just what is a producer and it's like the behind the scenes like the not glamorous part of like <laughs> the product that you see it's the hours upon hours yeah. weeks months that it takes to like the money part you know the coordination of you know, getting other people involved and like the writing, the, yeah. you know, all of the stuff that goes into putting a project together. Yeah. It's, you know, like I said earlier, a lot of people are quick to say what they want to do, but there's only so many people that show up and do it because it takes a lot of work. And, you know, I'm even thinking back on the fact that I said, you know, do what makes you happy. And you, we are talking about paying bills. There's a, there's a conflict sometimes in terms of like, I might want to do what makes me happy, but I got to pay these bills. But like I said, you know, I'm just one testimony. I really do believe that when you have that faith to just serve what makes that's going to serve yourself and also more so the greater good, it does work out because I know what it's like to be broke. I know what it's like to be waiting for that one paycheck. And, I, and then I know what it's like when you got money in the bank. Mm -hmm. So I didn't see both ends of the stick or whatever. But the thing that's always been true, my needs have always been met. And when I've always stuck to what I believe in, that's when it works out. When I don't stick to what I believe in, it's not. 
that's just like so I just want to really emphasize that point and like you're right there's like the whole starving artists but I think sometimes like we're still striving Mm -hmm. you know I mean right now I'm working at the University of San Francisco and I'm thankful for this job shout out to my coworkers. you know they know I pursue my art and it took time for me to even get to this position right now in terms of a good balance between you know I work my job at the at the university and I do the podcast and I do my plays and I do listen for a change and I'm still pursuing what I love to do and ideally the goal is to get to a point where, you know, the writing, the podcast, the work within the community can just all be the full time thing. But I'm thankful for um, where I'm at right now because it's going to prepare me for where I'm trying to go. Sometimes I think, you know, and I, I got to tell myself this. I'm not trying to act like I don't have moments where I'm like, man, I'm just ready to be doing what I want to do full time. All this, You know what I mean? Yeah. But recently me and my friend Asia were talking about this, about we got to look at why we are where, where we are. And what not only is it doing for us, but maybe it's doing something for somebody else. And when I came back to the office, a few of my coworkers were like, man, when you're out of the space, yo, it's not as like positive and joyful. Like we love when you're in the space. And I was like, I love when I'm in the space with you guys too. And so it made me realize like, yo, like, of course I can see where I'm going to be three to five years from now. I know I'm not going to always be here. I know that. But if this is where I'm at right now to offer optimism to offer some laughter and joy and the same thing for them too they offer me a lot of great things too so think about where you're at and what you can learn from where you're at and how that's going to better prepare you for where you want to go and that's applicable let it be as an artist let it be as you're pursuing an engineering lawyer whatever it is like I really believe there's always something to learn wherever we're at I feel like idealizing like a certain this is it totally goes into like grass is greener on the other side sort of <laughs> metaphor but um definitely there are experiences that you have that aren't like part of the plan oh and, yes <laughs> but those can be so rich for yeah the right i mean i mean this is getting super philosophical but like <laughs> you only have one life to live you know like make the mm. best of each moment and that's super cliche to say but i mean all of it i mean art and anything creative or anything that's meaningful um isn't like tied up in a bow tie you know it's not supposed to be some idea of perfect I know that um after years of working in customer service or serving Mm -hmm. you know people at restaurants uh and whenever I see people who just obviously hate their jobs at um I don't know, anywhere in public. And I try not to be judgmental in terms of, like, I don't know their story. I don't know what they're going through. But at the same time, I'm like, I've been there. Like, I know what it feels like. And if anything, people (laughs) that you serve in customer service or just anywhere, like, um, passing by anybody who you're like, okay, you're not my first choice. But, (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, like, what, I mean, ideally, like, you just always need to be practicing whatever values you have of what you think reality should be like and we're always sort of inventing reality in our own right in our own space doesn't always have to be murky and terrible and even if you have to fake it till you make it like that's (laughs) man (laughs) i mean it just helps you like be persistent to not give Mm. up to just even if it sucks you know like as long as you come back to well what's the alternative like what would i rather be doing and you know it's there's a whole like Mm. balance of like what your life the roles you play and where you're trying to go towards and you don't have to do like a complete 180 like there's some good things that are going on right now you know qualities that 
you know, shine through uh, whatever job you have. Like, as long as you're not working for, like, Al Capone or, you know, like... And hustle. Uh, like, <laughs> as long as it's not, like, unethical, you know, like, maybe... I mean, or maybe... It, I mean, what? who's to define what ethical is in mm. some, to some extent? But, um, uh, yeah, I guess <laughs> there's a lot of different ways to look at, like, what... Um, back to the question of, like... Uh, academia is and like trying to like make academia work within your schedule not just in this like being cooped up in the classroom it goes outside you know yeah. too in the in the world with my students at college track you know i always tell them i'm like build authentic relationships with people don't just network don't just you know come into a situation looking like what you can get think about what can you give and really allow yourself to engage with people in memorable ways. So then when something pops up, they think of you. And that's how you essentially can then get like your per se foot in the door mm -hmm. with any given like position or thing that you're doing. So those social skills, talking to people, putting yourself out there. And there's a lot of different platforms now that we have that allows us to do that. But yeah, you know, I guess we'll see over time what things look like. But it's I think it's just important to um Make sure whatever you're doing just connects to something that's going to, you know, help yourself grow and then help others grow, whatever that may be. Just and do what makes you happy, people. Too many people looking sad. Yeah. We got to be happy people. I know. <laughs> happy people. Yeah. <laughs> what, uh, your involvement with uh, Listen yes. for a Change. I feel like that is something that more people need to, to know about for sure. Yeah, it's, definitely. Yeah. So you're um, a story coach and you also are the host and, and teller um at listen for a change you know i guess i'll let you I'm not yeah so shout out to mr tai chu who is a good friend of mine and my photographer for life he takes bomb pictures y'all hit up tai chu um his instagram is alive by shooting but in any case he is the founder of this awesome organization this nonprofit called listen for a change um which holds two meanings um listen for a change in the sense that we live in a world where people are so quick to talk and give their opinion they got to make their point how, how, how about listening how about allowing yourself to take a step back from your opinion and listen to somebody outside of your world your thoughts and listen to where they're coming from and the second part to listen for a change is listen for a change like we're going to listen to these stories and we're going to go out there and we're going to actually activate change so the what listen for a change is is a nonprofit social justice storytelling platform and the way it works is we have these story hours where generally we have three storytellers who tell a personal 10-minute story that connects to a social a social issue in society and then on top of that they're also representing an organization or charity that connects to the so social issue. So then it can prompt you as a listener to then go make that change by either donating, working with them, because parts of the proceeds for each story hour does go to um, the organizations that we work with. And so Ty has been doing this now for three years, I want to say. And me and Ty were friends prior, but I came on in 2016 first as a storyteller. He hit me up and was like, I'm starting this, you know, um, organization. I'm looking for some storytellers. You're a writer. Can you write a tell me tell a story? And I was like, sure. I said, well, you didn't even talk about. He was like, black people. I was like, I'm black, so I can write about that. He was talking about something in reference to Black Lives Matter. And so I ended up telling my story called Black Loves Ma Black Love Matters in um, relation to a friend of mine um, who passed away. 
So in any case, that was my first involvement with Listen for a Change as a storyteller, which really challenged me in the most vulnerable way of storytelling ever in my life. Because you really are up there just sharing your truth and you really connect with people in a way that I'm still wrapping my mind around it. So since then, um, I became I was a storyteller. Then I became a story coach, which means um, the storytellers who then go on to perform. You work with them to help them, you know, cultivate their story. Um, I know you mentioned earlier about working with the homeless uh, population. Last year, I worked with a young um, an older man named Sean who was living on the streets. So I've worked with people who have gone through domestic abuse, who have been homeless, um, who have overcame, you know, um, addiction all types of different things. And it really just reinforces me as a storyteller, as a person, we all have a story. Mm -hmm. And so I work with them as a storyteller, um, a storyteller coach. Also, I'm the Oakland MC for our Oakland Story Hours, Oakland slash Berkeley. And I'm also a member of the board. So it's it's an awesome, great organization, you guys. Um, go to listenforachange.org if you want to check out our next story hour, which will be happening, I believe, in September. We have our Night in, Gold ba- um, Night in Bold Gala, which happens every year. Um, and we're going to start branching off into corporate settings. Just really start, you know, engaging people with the power of storytelling within itself. And I love the organization just for the vulnerability, the courage mm-hmm. that it's, instilled into like the story um to the storytellers also into me um and also it's it's great to be in a position to support another person in like the vision of their dream Mm -hmm. like to get behind that the way that like ty came up like to me it was like the same as like a script like i want to do this do you want to help heck yeah i want to help i know it's a lot of work but i'm here what do you need me to do and so just offering whatever i can to then drive this into something bigger job you got personal things you know relationships family you know time for yourself friends so many things it's life and so just me like from my personal philosophy um in order for me to stay balanced I have to make sure I'm right within and me being right within means that I have to have a strong spiritual foundation um so for in terms of like finding that balance I have to make sure I'm finding time where I'm quiet I have to make sure I factor in times where I'm praying and I'm meditating because my physical body alone can't drive everything that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. At least that's how I just feel about it. So it all starts internally. So I got to make sure emotionally, mentally, and spiritually I'm grounded. And once that internal part of me is good, then all my external parts can then fall into place. And then also what I've been learning, because it's a process, y'all, it's a process um, in terms of balance. Um, Be present for what you're showing up for. So, you know, if I'm going to do the podcast, I'm present for the podcast. If I'm working on a screenplay, I'm working on the screenplay. If I'm spending time, you know, with my boo or getting somebody like whatever like that, then I'm with that person. If I'm with my friends, I'm with my friends, with my family, with my family, you know. So make sure you're present for wherever you're at because you're, you need you need you deserve that. Mm-hmm. And then also to just give yourself some grace because um, it's it's you got to figure out what works for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an ongoing process. I was telling my cousin last night, you know. Like we were talking about how important it is to just mentally 
checking with yourself and, you know, awareness and therapy and all these other things. And, you know, we talk about wanting to be whole and, you know, making sure we're living a life that's whole, but it's not an end goal. Mm -hmm. It's like the same way if you go to a gym, right? And you're like, all right, I want to get this four pack. And you work three months, you do all the things you need to do and you get the four pack, but you go back to eating donuts and doing whatever, you're going to get that pot belly again, right? So it's an ongoing process. So I've had to recognize that like with my wholeness, with my balance, my peace, I may fall off sometimes, but I got to keep working at it. So I would just say, you know, make sure you're taking time to get yourself within centered and then whatever's going on with you internally is going to reflect what's going on with you externally. I mean, it sucks if you show up to one of your, you know, like commitments and you're grumpy and mm-hmm. and it's like, wow, maybe I should just and sometimes I love it whenever you figure out what it is <laughs> and it's like I'm hangry, like I just need to take yeah. 10 minutes to like go get something to eat and then it's like an antidote like release you know from feeling like a grump and I'm just like oh I was just hungry I just needed food yep or something like maybe you just need a day off you know to completely recover and cut off a finger to save the hand and Mm. people will understand so much more than I think we think they will (laughs) sometimes if you're in that cycle of like over achieving all of the things and nobody else expects that from you really except for yourself most of the time right so I mean what's the saying if you're going to be your biggest critic make sure you're also your biggest fan yeah so if you and it's good like hold yourself accountable keep your word I think those are like things that you have to hold yourself to, but you also need to be patient with yourself. Mm -hmm. You also need to be tender with yourself and you also need to receive the grace for yourself. I mean, we, y'all, we were supposed to record on Monday and I had to email Darcy like, look, I had a crazy weekend. I'm over here, you know, between, you know, like we're doing remodeling on the home, all this, a lot of stuff going on. And, you know, I need a day. I'm not going to work. I just need a day to just debrief so I can show up better. And it worked out fine. We're recording now and we would have recorded Monday. I'd have been like, What's up, y'all? Yeah. I made it. <laughs> and I definitely don't, and I never want, like, anybody, and this is in any relationship with anybody, it's like, I don't really want anybody to feel like they're obligated, you know, like, to do mm-hmm. it just because, you know, like, time and space is, it's defied by other bigger things, you yeah. know, the value of, like, the quality of being present, of, like, yeah. knowing, like, whenever you can be your best self. Y'all could check me. I'm not really active on my Instagram, but it's there. It's AJ underscore life beauty. I kind of pop up every now and again. Mm-hmm. I got my website, AishaIsLife.com. Um, you can hit me up on there. My plays are available. And um, I'm working on one play, a book, and some short screenplays and short stories right now. So I'm still writing, y'all. So stay tuned. More stuff to come. To everyone, but especially to Aisha's second grade teacher, Miss Carrie, please find links to learn more about or to connect with Aisha in the archived episode webpage at KUSF.org or anchor.fm, among other podcast platforms. Thank you so much for listening to Artful Thought, a KUSF production in San Francisco.